seated. We come now to the time of confession, which uh, in many ways is the most important part of worship. It's a time where we recognize if you're a believer in Jesus and you've committed your trust in him, that uh, we have forgiveness. But as we all know that we continue to sin and we struggle with sin, and we're going to talk a little bit in the sermon today about guilt, but our freedom in Christ is that we suffer the guilt no more for our sin. And when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, and we can bring those sins to him openly and uh, without fear for his forgiveness. Let's read together this prayer of confession found in the Book of Common Prayer that's in your bulletin. Eternal God, in whom we live and move and have our being, whose face is hidden from us by our sins, and whose mercy we forget in the blindness of our hearts, cleanse us from all our offenses and deliver us from the proud thoughts and vain desires that with reverent and humble hearts we may draw near to you, confessing our faults, confiding in your grace, and finding in you our refuge and strength through Jesus Christ, your Son. Let's take just a few moments now to draw near as we've just prayed and confess our sins. We're thankful that you hear our prayers of confession and that we can do that without fear of condemnation. And it's Christ's name we pray, amen. Now look up and hear these words, the assurance of pardon from Romans 8, verses 1 and 2. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, I'm sorry to tell you that there's no musical offering today. You, uh, you may have known that, but uh, I am not going to provide a substitute. Uh, so turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus for the reading of the scripture. I'm reading from the NIV, and I'd like to begin in Philippians chapter 4. At verse 4, Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, 
Think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful again that we have the opportunity to be together with other believers and to worship you. I pray, Lord, that you would um, now grant us this time to worship you in truth. I pray that you would protect your word as it goes forth, that uh, you would remove any human frailty from anything that I say or that we think as we go through this. And we thank you for the sufficiency of your word that by your word you have given us everything that we need for life and godliness. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Now, my name is Philip Temple. I am a ruling elder at uh, Mitchell Road Presbyterian Church in Greenville. And I am, uh, in the immortal words of the Chick-fil-A employee, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, The... uh, The thing that I would like to talk about today is what I've just read to you about, rejoicing and rejoicing in the Lord. But you know, there's a lot of sadness in the world. We uh, uh, have a friend, a young mother, who was pregnant with her third child, and she was diagnosed with a brain tumor during her pregnancy. They delayed doing anything about the brain tumor until the baby was born, and when the baby was born, they did surgery, they They thought they got the tumor out, and she was on the mend, and within, I think, three weeks or maybe a month or so, they did a follow-up and found that the tumor had returned. Um, Just a few weeks ago, my wife's cousin died after being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. She died within two weeks of the diagnosis. We have friends whose children are estranged from them, Not only that, the kids have actually deconstructed, which you may have read a lot about lately. And the the heinousness, aside from walking away from the faith, is that most of these kids blame their parents for all the troubles that they have because they were brought up in the faith. And that's, there's just a lot of sadness. And on top of all that, we face another election year this coming year. And that's going to cause all kinds of angst, regardless of what your political views are. It's always uh, troubling. And yet here, Paul says, rejoice. And he says it twice. Rejoice in the Lord. Now that rejoice there is the imperative. It means it's a command. We are to rejoice. But the... That's a, it's, it's more difficult when you think about rejoicing or being joyful. Philippians, when Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians, uh, he said a lot about joy and rejoicing. Philippians is a thank you letter to the believers at Philippi that Paul wrote because they had sent him an offering to help with his expenses and comfort. He was in jail in Rome at this time. And they had sent a fellow named Epaphroditus with an offering. And he's writing them this letter back as he sends Epaphroditus back to them to thank them. But he's also writing it as an encouragement to them because they're beginning to experience some persecution for believing what they believe. And so Paul talks a lot in this book. It's a short book, only four chapters. He talks a lot about joy 
In fact, one commentator said that there were 16 mentions of it. I looked for them. I found 14. Um, but there, whether it's 14 or 16 doesn't make any difference. Paul, one of the bases of this book is to have joy. So I guess the question is, uh, well, let me go back. The Bible is full of references to joy. Think of all the Psalms where it talks about joy. And in 1 Peter it says rejoice even though you're going to face some hardships. And James says count it all joy when you face tribulation because we know that tribulation works patience. So with all of this information in the Bible about joy, the question is then, do you feel joyful? Do you experience joy? I want to talk about three things today. Um, One is, what does joy really mean? What does it mean to rejoice? The second thing is, what are the obstacles to our joy or to rejoicing? And the third thing is, what do we do about those obstacles? So first, let's talk about what what does it mean to rejoice? Uh, When you think of the word rejoice or joy, what do you think of? Now, there uh, was, back in the 80s, a song that was written by a fella that actually made it to the number one hit on whatever chart it is that they measure those things. And that song was called, Don't Worry, Be Happy. And this is the, these are the lyrics to the first verse and the chorus. Here, some of y'all remember that? Here's a little song I wrote. You might want to sing it note for note. Don't worry, be happy. In every life we have some trouble, but when you worry, you make it double. Don't worry, be happy. Don't worry, be happy now. And then the chorus is, there are three or four verses, I won't read them all to you. The chorus repeats a number of times. Don't worry, oh, 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 be happy. Oh, 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 don't worry, be happy. Oh, 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 oh. Oh, oh, don't worry. Oh, 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 be happy. Oh, 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 don't worry, be happy. That song made it to the number one hit on whatever chart it was in 1988 when the guy wrote it. Now, he was probably drunk when he did it, but I don't know that. Uh, But why did that make it to the number one hit? Because... It's tough to be happy in this world. And that's part of the problem that we, we equate this idea of joy or rejoicing with happiness. I'm one of seven children, and there was a lot of chaos in my house, primarily because five of them were sisters. And uh, I had an older brother who was at the head, and I was the fifth. So I had girls on both sides of me. So there was a lot of angst. I... Uh, probably should take part of the responsibility for that because I did heckle my sisters quite a bit. Um, And there would be times when there would be some chaos going on. And my father, who was a man of great patience, but uh, sometimes a fairly short temper, would say, you children get happy. And we at least stopped bickering. But I don't know that he could command us to be happy, although he did. And it at least made him happy because we got quiet. But most people think of this idea of being joyful, being happy. But what's the problem with that? Happiness is a feeling. It's something that 
you experience because of some good thing or something that makes you feel good. But happy sometimes also carries with it the absence of sadness or, or, or trouble. But that can't be what Paul means here. Because the Bible also talks about, well, for one thing, Isaiah says that the Messiah, who is Jesus, was a man of sorrows. And Jesus himself um, said that then in this world you'll have trouble. And the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount, it says that blessed are the, those who mourn, and blessed are the poor in spirit. So happiness can't be an absence of sadness or trouble. So what is it then? Well, Paul gives us the idea here in verse 7. He calls it the peace of God which transcends all understanding. Think about that. I like the King James better because it says it's the peace that passes understanding. Have you ever experienced that peace when something that you're experiencing is troubling? but yet you have the sense that God is in control and that he's near and you have a peace. You may not understand how or why or where it comes from, but you have peace. That's what joy is. R.C. Sproul said that peace is a deep, abiding, a profound sense of peace, comfort, and stability in your soul. Profound sense of peace, comfort, and stability in your soul. My wife did a Bible study based on a book. I've, she, her memory's not as good as it used to be because it used to be a steel trap. But uh, we tried to find the quote. But the quote was something like this, and we think it was from Nancy Guthrie. If you know her books or are familiar with them, you can tell me afterwards. But it is that joy is the background music of life. Now, I don't know if you, you, some of us find it irritating to go into a store like Hobby Lobby and hear the music that's playing, but background music, I chose Hobby Lobby because they play Christian music in Hobby Lobby, in case you haven't noticed, sometimes it's well disguised, but every now and then you can pick up a tune of a, of a Christian song that you'll recognize, but it's background music, it's the thing that's going on in your soul all the time, that you just have a sense that things are going to be okay. Now, why don't we feel like that all the time? That takes us to the second point. There are obstacles to this joy, and one of those is in verse 6. It says, Do not be anxious about anything. Now, being anxious is the same thing as worrying. Do any of you worry? Robertson McQuilkin one time said that his wife, Muriel, was a chain worrier. As soon as one crisis passed, she started worrying about the next one. And I can identify with that. Sometimes I get preoccupied with what's going on and I get weighed down. Somebody told me one time that 90% of what you worry about is not going to happen. And uh, my... Refrain always, even at, at work, if something comes up and it looks like it's going to be a problem, I'll say, well, I'll deal with that later because the Lord could come back and I don't want to have to worry about it at all. <laughs> or you could take the position of Scarlett O'Hara and say, I'll think about that tomorrow. 
But worry is a real thing. And we all are subject to it. Otherwise, why would Jesus have addressed it? Look at Matthew chapter 6. The Sermon on the Mount takes up several chapters in the book of Matthew. But in chapter 6, verse 25, Jesus devotes a large section to worry. Matthew 6, verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you, no more, are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And he goes on and talks about the lilies of the field and how they're clothed. And Solomon was, was not even dressed as well as these things. And then he says, oh, you of little faith, in the end of verse 30. So don't worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. I always thought this was interesting. Tomorrow will worry about itself. There'll be things to worry about tomorrow, so don't worry about that. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So here Jesus is saying, yeah, there's trouble. You're going to have trouble. But don't worry about it. So what do you worry about? At this stage of my life, I'm preoccupied at least. I don't know that I've spent a lot of time worrying about it, but I'm preoccupied with the idea of finances. Are we going to have enough money to last, or am I going to have to go get a job at Walmart or Lowe's? Uh, you're concerned about health, health of a spouse, health of a loved one, the death of a loved one. A lot of us are concerned about the world we're leaving for our children and grandchildren. That's significant. So, why do we worry? A couple of reasons. One is, it's a lack of a, a lack of control or a sense of a lack of control. We worry about things we don't have any control over. Primarily, we worry because of fear. Jesus addressed that too. R.C. Sproul, by the way, Sproul has a, a four or five little lecture series on joy, and some of this information comes from that. And as a lawyer, I know that if I give credit to the source, then I'm not plagiarizing. <laughs> but I would, it, it would do you good to go listen. It's Ligonier Ministries. You can click on it and find it. It's four short little messages on, uh, on joy. But one of the things that... Um, he said was that Jesus admonished his followers not to be afraid more than any other instruction. I never thought of that. But you think about all the things that Jesus told his followers, the number one thing was don't be afraid. So a lot of times our fear is because we're afraid that something's going to happen. In John 16, Jesus says, you don't need to turn there, it's just short. But in John 16, 
he says, uh, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That's kind of trite, but you've heard that saying. You know, we've read the last chapter of the book. We win. Jesus says here, I have overcome the world. So there's no, there's no need to fear. So the third obstacle, we have worry, we have fear. The third obstacle is self-focus. Paul addresses that back in Philippians, if you want to go back to Philippians. Um, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, if you have, in the beginning of verse 1, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not only look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of, of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One of the obstacles to joy is self-focus. We think too much about ourselves. And Paul here says, don't think any more about yourself than you ought to. Think of others put others' interests before you. In Sunday school, uh, there was a little song that we sang that was deep theology. It was called Joy. The words were Jesus and others and you. What a wonderful way to spell joy. Jesus and others and you for each boy and each, for each girl and each boy. Um, J is for Jesus, for he has first place. O is for others, you meet face to face. Y is for you and whatever you do. Put yourself last and spell joy. There's a lot of theology in that. Uh, but there's the thing that a lot of times the reason that we worry or that we're afraid is because we're thinking about ourselves. And Jesus Paul here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, take your focus off yourself. Judy counsels a lot. My wife counsels, uh, not officially. I told her if you know, she had gotten a degree, we could have made a lot of money with all the counseling that she does. But she helps ladies. And she had a young lady come to her one time whose children had just 
grown, last one had just grown and gotten out of the house, and she said, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. I don't know what to do. And Judy said, well, I can give you a list of things that there are people who need meals. There, You could babysit for a young mother. You could offer to take older people to doctor's appointments. There, there's a million things you could do. And she said, well, I'm not talking about that. So the idea that we focus on ourselves too much gives us a lot of time to think about things that aren't right or things we don't like or things that we're afraid of. So that's a huge obstacle. So the obstacles, there might be a lot of them, but worry, fear, selfishness, those are all things that have one thing in common. They take our eyes off of our relationship with Jesus. We tend to forget who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Jesus addressed that too in Luke chapter 10. If you want to turn there, it's a a passage where Jesus is sending out 72 of his followers and he's giving them instructions about going into different towns and places and and he says, "You're, you're going to go places where they're not going to like you and things are going to be tough. It's going to be a difficult journey. It would lead you to believe that these guys were going to go out and, and have trouble. But if you look in chapter 10, in verse 17, sorry, Luke chapter 10, verse 17, the 72 returned with joy, there's our word, and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. They were full of joy. Why? Because they saw God's power and they experienced the power coming through them. After everything Jesus said about all the trouble they were going to have, they went out and they experienced being able to cast out demons. Even the demons were subject to their power that Jesus had given them. And Jesus gives credence to that. Look at verse 18. Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now what we would like to see is all this power We want to see God work. We want to feel this uh, sense of God being in control and that what we say gets done and what we want happens. And Jesus said, yeah, that's a good thing. But that's not what makes you joyful. What makes you joyful is that your name is written in heaven. Now, what does that carry with it? What does it mean for your name to be written in heaven? If you're here today and you don't know what that means, then... I I beg you to talk to somebody in this church who knows what that means. But just briefly, what that means is that you have put your faith and trust in the work of Jesus Christ, not only on the cross, although that's the main thing, but his life that fulfilled the demands of the law that we cannot fulfill. He fulfilled all the demands of the law. Then he subjected himself, like we read earlier in the chapter 2 of Philippians, He subjected himself to death, 
and that death was on the cross. Now, a lot of people talk about the price that Jesus paid from the physical standpoint, and it was terrible. But there are a lot of people who've died terrible deaths, and there are a lot of gruesome ways to die. And we certainly don't want to downplay the suffering, the physical suffering of Jesus, but that was not the most horrible thing that he experienced. And you might say, well, his, the thing that he experienced was his father forsaking him because he cried out. And that's true, too. I don't want to take anything away from that. But think about this. After he fulfilled the law's demands, he didn't have to die. He subjected himself to his own creation. Jesus is God. Everything that was created was created by the word. Jesus is responsible for all of creation. And he subjected himself to his creatures who thought that they had the upper hand. I mean, if you stop to think about that, one of, the, one of my favorite books is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I used to teach elementary school before it was in another life. And one of the things that I did was to read the children, the Narnia Chronicles. I was a real sucker. They knew it because I loved those books and I loved to read. So if they wanted to get out of something, they'd say, oh, read another chapter. So, but one of my favorite passages in that book is when Aslan submitted himself to the white witch and the stone table. And these ghouls and monsters and animals were jumping around with glee as they shaved his mane and tied him down as though they had the control. And he allowed it to happen. The humiliation of that, to me, I think, is, is every bit as a horrible thing as his physical suffering. So Jesus redeemed his children. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are one of his redeemed children. He paid the penalty. He bought you. And like I said, if you haven't put your faith and trust in him, please talk to somebody about that before you leave today. But if you have, then consider what that means. One of the most precious things that that means is we talk about forgiveness of sin we did our confession this morning in worship but part the biggest thing about that to me is the freedom from guilt not to harp on R.C. Sproul but another thing he said was that in his debates with atheists the question that he always tries to get to is what do you do about your guilt everybody because of God's law written in our hearts, everybody has a sense of knowing that we've fallen short. And it produces guilt. And some of us have done some horrible things that we don't want anybody to know about. But when Christ redeemed us, he paid the penalty for that guilt and he forgave it. Now in the law, we talk about factually guilty and legally guilty. Legally guilty means that we can prove the facts that, that make you guilty in a court of law. The presumption of innocence in our law says that we can't say that you're guilty until we can prove that you're guilty. But factual guilt is whether you're guilty or not. And factually, we are all guilty. But legally even though our guilt has been proven, it's been paid for. Now the problem with that is 
sometimes we still feel guilty. And sometimes that even produces even more worry. If somebody found out what we did in our past, what would they think? But you know, when you really understand God's forgiveness and the payment for his, his payment for your guilt, it doesn't matter what's in the past. We're free from that. And we should be free from the feelings of guilt. Now, that doesn't mean that you sin with impunity. Because when we sin, and we will continue to sin, Paul does a great job in Romans talking about, oh, wretched man that I am. The things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do, I don't want to do. What am I going to do? This is a terrible cycle. But there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when we sin, the feeling of guilt is a good thing. In Psalm 32, we won't turn there, but in Psalm 32, David talks about that. That's the psalm that he wrote after, he was, after his sin with Bathsheba was exposed. And he said, while he regarded that sin, in the King James it says, my bones waxed old. He felt sick. We had a friend years ago who was having an adulterous affair. Nobody knew it. We didn't find out about it until later. But I even told my wife, I said, I think something's wrong with him. He looks so sick. I thought he had cancer. He looked awful. But then when he finally confessed it and confessed it to a, a few people who helped hold him accountable, there was such relief. And that's what David talks about in Psalm 32. And he prays at the end of that psalm, Restore to me, O God, the joy of your salvation. So when we do sin, guilt is a good thing. It drives us back to God, to Christ, to his forgiveness. But we don't stay there. We don't stay with that guilt. The guilt is a good thing to drive us there. But then we experience God's forgiveness and we're free from that guilt. So how do we overcome the guilt and the fear and the worry, we, we overcome that by recognizing what Jesus has done for us. Our joy, the source of our joy, is the fact that our names are written in heaven. And if our names are written in heaven, then it doesn't matter what happens. Let's go back to Philippians chapter 4. Because there Paul gives some practical things. One of the things I like about Paul's writings is that he doesn't ever tell you to do anything in a vacuum. If he says don't do something, then he says do this. And he gives us the key here. He says rejoice in the Lord always. And I will say it again, rejoice. Skip to verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your request to God. You know, that's a very familiar passage. I think if you've been a Christian very long, somebody's pointed that out to you. Don't be anxious, but pray. But look at what it says. In everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So prayer is the basis. Prayer is the first threshold. You pray. And you let your petitions be known, but with thanksgiving. 
So what does that mean? How do you pray with thanksgiving? It's not a trick question. You think about things to be thankful for. Think about what God has done for you and how he has showed himself faithful to you in the past. And you pray with the understanding that God is going to do what he wants to do, but for your good and his glory. So we can pray with thanksgiving, but it says by prayer and petition. Now that petition, that word petition there, that means tell God what you want. And you know, it's okay to tell God what you want, even if you're angry. Look at the Psalms. Almost There's a whole section of Psalms called Psalms of Lament. And all of them talk about, God, why are you doing this? How can this happen? Why is this happening to me? Why are these terrible people getting away with this? And always partway through that psalm it will say, but, or however, or then I thought, or then God told me, or God revealed to me. So we can lament, we can tell God what it is that's bothering us. And we let our requests be made known to God. And that produces a sense of peace, the peace that we talked about that really is the background, which is what we call joy. If we can present our request to God and understand that he's in control and that he loves us, a lot of times people say, well, yeah, I know God's in control, but all that is is fatalism. But when God's in control and he loves you, then whatever happens, he knows about it. Not only does he know about it, he's directed it. You know, the book of Habakkuk is another one of my favorite books. Uh, there's a verse there that everybody, well, not everybody, there's a very familiar verse there where God <coughs> says to Habakkuk, um, I'm going to show you great and mighty things that you never thought of. And... Uh, That passage, people quote that as saying, God's going to do something great, and he does. But do you know what the basis of the book of Habakkuk is? Habakkuk was a prophet, and he was concerned about the sins of the Israelites. They They had forsaken God altogether. And he was saying to God, how can you let this go? You are, these are your people, and they're, flaunting the idolatry in your face. How can you let this happen? And God says, just wait. I'm going to do something that you would never have done. So be careful when you pray for revival. Because what God did was he said, I am raising up the Babylonians, the fierce and uh, terrible people. And... uh, You know what, I was in the wrong chapter. That's why I couldn't find that verse. He says in verse 5 of chapter 1, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. So I'm going to do something in your days that you will not believe, even though it were told you. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. And Habakkuk says, well, now, wait a minute. That's not what I had in mind. And God said, Habakkuk said, how can you do that? They're worse than us. And God said, where were you when I created things? 
Are you the one that controls the rivers and the way they run? Are you the one that makes the horses swift? And Habakkuk finally said, I understand. You're in control. And you're good. And you're just. And so at the end of the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk says, in verse 17, though the fig tree does not bud, and there, there, and there are no grapes on the vine. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no fruit. Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord, there's the key, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. And what that means is, apparently these deer that he was familiar with were sure-footed. They were able to climb up into the rocky, craggy places and not slip. And so what Habakkuk says is, no matter what the circumstances are, I know that God is in control and that he's good. He's sovereign. So I can be sure-footed. I don't have to worry about what's happened because it's not me. It's God. And that takes us back to Philippians again because that's when Paul says, here's what you need to do. You make your request known to God and then you think right thoughts. Now, you, you know, you'd think that that would be fairly simple, straightforward. There's a, I may have mentioned this before because, anyway, there's a skit uh, that uh, Bob Newhart did. Um, you may have seen it. It's a, uh, he's a psychologist and a girl comes to him and, and he says, you don't have to watch the whole thing. The gist of it is, though, she's afraid that somebody's going to bury her alive in a box. And he said, uh, so he told you they're going to bury you alive in a box? And she said, no. And he said, well, why do you think somebody's going to bury you alive in a box? And he, she said, well, I just have this fear that that's going to happen. And he said, okay, I've got the solution. He said, she said, okay, shall I take notes? And he said, no, no, it's just two words. And she said, okay, what is it? And he said, stop it. <laughs> and she said, I beg your pardon? And he said, stop it. And she said, stop what? And he said, stop being afraid somebody's going to bury you alive in a box. What, are you crazy or something? That's the way I would be if I were a counselor. And that's why God has not called me to counsel people. But there is some truth to that. And that's what Paul talks about here. Because if we make our requests known, we're going to have peace that passes understanding that will guard our hearts. And that next phrase is, and your minds in Christ Jesus. But praying about it, while that's necessary and should be enough, Paul says, think about the right kinds of things. And he gives you a list. Whatever's true, what do you know that's true? God's in control and he loves you. Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So when you're tempted to worry, after you pray about it, then think right thoughts. <coughs> You may need to get with somebody else who can encourage you to think right thoughts. You may need to spend time reading your Bible 
to help you orient your thinking. You know, we can't do this on our own. And Paul even says, even in his greeting in chapter 1, it says that he thanks God for, his, for every remembrance of these people because he knows that it is God who began a good work in you and will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. It's God's spirit working in us that gives us the ability to do anything. In John 15, we won't turn there, but the John 15 is that passage about abiding in the vine. Um, a lot of people get into the details about whether that means people can lose their salvation and all that, and that's not what that's talking about. What that's talking about is abiding in Christ in the sense that we remain close to the source. That may be an oversimplification, but that's basically what Jesus is talking about there. You will not survive if you don't stay close to the source. Close to the source of his grace, his goodness, his mind, the things that will help us to concentrate on what's true and what's right and what's pure and that whole list. We can't do it by ourselves. We need each other, and we need to stay close to the source. And that's why, all things being considered, that Paul can say that the peace of God will be with you all. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are a sovereign God. And I pray, Lord, that you would impress on our hearts and minds what that really means, that you love us, that you're in control, that you orchestrate everything about our lives and about what happens to us so we can rest in your love for us, both in your redemption of our souls but also in the order of our lives. And I pray that you'd help us to concentrate on the things that Paul's listed here that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. Help us to concentrate on those things and in your grace. And we thank you that that's sufficient. And it's Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's turn in your hymnals now to hymn number 30. O God, our help in ages past. And we're seeing verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. <clears throat> 